I don't know, a Shah Rukh Khan to come and read books on wildlife, then let's do it. But, you know, we have to mainstream these issues. Um, I'm going to play a small AV for you. I'm not going to take 30 minutes. I know it's been a long day. Um, I just want to take you into the forest and, you know, just relax, sit back, relax, some, uh, enjoy some of these images, the sounds of the forest. And uh, just to introduce you to a little bit about this book, which... Um, I think brought me much joy while writing it, so I hope you feel the same joy while reading it. Please just play it. Um, can we have some lights off? Is it possible? Maybe you can see it better. You don't need to look at me. Um, so these are images just put together of a journey I did. Can we lower the sound a bit? Just, yeah. yeah. So this is a... This is... This is a journey um, I took two years ago. It took me two years to travel around for this book and a year to write it up. I had spent almost 15 years as a journalist telling stories of rhinos being poached, of the mining mafia, of forests being decimated. And my soul was very weary. And I decided to explore a new concept, which was uh, you know, riding the conservation wave in the West, which was called rewilding. Now, rewilding, you may say, is just a fanciful term for restoration ecology or planting more trees. But actually, it was coined by two conservation biologists, Michael Sule and Rodney. And what they basically said was that there are three C's to rewilding, which is carnivores, cores, and corridors. And I think uh, Anish spoke very well about corridors. Uh, so... What they emphasized was that it's not just about going and restoring a species or planting trees, but it's actually about putting back in the ecosystem these three C's. And that's why I chose the topics uh, for this book based on these three C's. And what I found was that not all projects in India would cover the three C's. They would cover maybe one or two. Corridors invariably would get neglected. Carnivores, later the definition got expanded to include keystone species as well. So it wasn't confined just to carnivores. So I, in fact, included a book, uh, one of the chapters was on the Mahasir. Um, you can see over here, this is the pygmy hawk. Uh, interestingly, the only pig that builds a nest. Little nuggets of information came out as I was doing research on this book. To me, that was just fascinating. If you just scroll through the book, you'll say, oh, we know vultures are being bred. We know the pygmy hog is being bred in captivity. But do we know the everyday struggles that conservation biologists, forest officers, managers, community people go through to protect some of our wild landscapes? To me, the ups and downs of the conservation journey were missing. Those were the missing pieces in the puzzle. Those were the finer details that I wanted to know more about. And this, for instance, is a turtle hatchery by the side of the chumbal. Um, so I went over there and I was lucky at that time. The turtles were just about to hatch. And there you see it. It just came out. And its first instinct, of course, is to go into the waters of the chumbal. That's Santram. Uh, he's a poacher turned protector. He now looks after these nests. And I had actually the joy of micro-tagging uh, these... Uh, beautiful creatures before they were going to be released back into the water. Um, and as they put them in the bucket, it was such a beautiful moment because it seems like, you know, like popcorn in a microwave, just crackling like that as they struggle to get out of the bucket and go back into the water. Um, so these are riverside hatcheries. And I think these are small things again, which we don't know much about. The fact that this is happening in the chumbal. Then I contacted um, uh, uh, a scientist 
We then looked at the efficacy of these hatcheries, given the fact that in Chambal upstream, what time they released the dump, sorry, that's my daughter. She also accompanied me on a couple of those journeys. Uh, this was in Manas National Park. And uh, this is in Povitara. What I found fascinating was we're literally moving animals around like chess. So in Assam, for instance, protected areas where rhinos are not found are being brought in from areas where rhinos are in excess. And uh, this is the vulture story you all know very well. What I didn't know was that many conservation biologists go undercover to go and see whether the diclofenac is still for sale in the markets. So imagine, biologists are going out and playing the role of detectives. And these are, you know, I think the varied roles that a biologist is expected to play while conserving a species. You know about the mass die-offs which happened, I think this is, uh, I'm not sure, but this is related to the vultures again. Everybody knows the vulture story. If you look at that perch over there, um, again, I found fascinating what I was told by Vibhu Prakash was that he had built a machan in Bharatpur while doing his research and he found the vultures had started coming and using that as a nest. So he used that information when he was making his captive breeding center to provide the bedding for the vulture inside the cages they were made from the Indian charpai because he found that it provided the right kind of buoyancy for such a heavy bird to perch on. And so these are little innovations again, which he was using to replicate the environment, the naturalistic environment in captivity. Some of these birds are going to be released back in the wild. Uh, again, it's going to be a tough task monitoring and making sure that the diclofenac is not there. An interesting fact again, India has banned diclofenac. In Europe, the pharmaceutical companies have refused to ban it. So some ways we take the bold steps. We have taken bold steps. And of course, some places we don't do enough. Um, Raghu sitting here, I made a journey to Panna and uh, I'm going to read a little bit about that chapter as well. But again, we're spending so much money on conserving the tiger, there are foot soldiers out there guarding every tiger in Sariska and Panna. But what do we do? We go and give clearance for a river linking project which will submerge half the forest where we are protecting tigers. So why this dichotomy in our conservation policies? That is also something which this book investigates. And I think that's the last image. <laughs> so if we can have the lights on, I'd just like to read small excerpts from my book. And I'd be happy to take any questions which you may have at the end of this. <clears throat> OK. In my mind's eye, I'd been scouring the world, seeking out all that was wrong and needed to be fixed. I saw air laden with carcinogenic particles, plastics choking marine life, and sludge pouring onto weary rivers. My soul was weary too. I'd become too used to seeing the world consistently deprived of wilderness, carpeted with concrete. My heart ached for a rich forest where species of all shapes and forms thrived. After a decade of covering stories of poaching and deforestation, battling the mining mafia, exposing corrupt politicians, it was time to tell the stories of efforts being made to protect nature. As I viewed nature through this new lens, I found many such instances of turtle eggs incubating in riverside nurseries and then released in cool waters, rhinos abounding in areas from where they'd been wiped out, tigers colonizing new habitats. India was on the move 
as was its wildlife. But my research had a greater mission than documenting these feel-good stories. I wanted to explore a concept called rewilding that had become a hot topic in the West. The term first used by activist Dave Foreman and later defined by biologist Michael Sule and Reed Noss was revitalizing the conservation scene across the world. Rewilding seemed more appealing than traditional conservation as it gave humans a mandate to fix the problem. And so I dedicated two years of my life to traveling around India in search of projects that would fit this definition. And now um, I'll just read a small excerpt especially because Raghu is here and uh, this book did travel to Panna. Okay. So this is chapter two, it's called Bringing Back Stripey. I'm bundled in an open jeep nearly dozing off when a cold early morning burst of wind slaps me into wide-eyed wakefulness. I sit up, strain my eyes to catch a glimpse of the yellow stripes that could send any slender-legged ruminant running for cover. This is undulating tiger country. Scraggly trees holding on to large grey boulders with their exposed roots, giving way to the gushing Ken River. We've been driving for an hour. The lemon rays of the sun have only now penetrated the canopy, opening up a kaleidoscope of brown and green on the forest floor. I'm unable to spot a tiger, but I see a grey jeep parked in the middle of the dusty yellow tracks of the tiger reserve. The park guide accompanying me shakes his head apologetically when I request him to pull up next to the vehicle. They are tracking the radio collar tigers. We are not allowed to disturb them, he explains. We are, after all, in one of the most controversial tiger reserves in the country. The sordid tale of the disappearance of Panna's tigers may not even have reached a wider audience if it hadn't been for Raghunandan Chunnavat. Raghu had been researching the big cats in this part of Gundhelkhan for over a decade, living deep inside the national park, following the radio collar tigers day and night. It was he who shot off letters to the National Tiger Authority, soon to the Ministry of Environment and Forest, to let them know that Panna was going the Sariska way. It took four years for the government to act. A special investigation team constituted by the MP government confirmed Raghu's worst fears. Raghu should have been the hero of Panna. He became its fall guy. And finally, this is on my journey in Manas. Um, I'm going to read just a small, again, paragraph because for me it was just really magical what I experienced. On my last day in Manas, I am blessed to witness one of nature's most dazzling spectacles, a ballet put up by Mother Nature against a light blue canvas, a swirling, pulsating, huge black cloud. This is the murmuration of starlings moving in exquisite coordination, as if orchestrated by an unseen hand. Granger Hunt, a scientist at the Peregrine Foundation, describes this phenomenon as an aerial ballet, almost like a fluid choreography of funnels, ribbons, and hourglasses, spills and mixing ever in motion, dense in one moment, diffused in the next. Experts say it's basically a mass aerial stunt performed by birds before they roost for the night. The flock of starlings provides this aerial display as a parting visual treat on my last evening here. The swirling cloud of starlings is a reminder that Manas is once again rebounding with life, the unicorns of Manas may have returned, but will their continued safety 
be a pipe dream. I'll stop here. Um, thank you so much. So, um, a sales pitch here. If you like the book, please pick it up. There'll be copies downstairs. There's a 10% discount. I've also personally signed them. Thank you so much. Happy to take any questions. Questions, comments, feedback. Even negative is good. <laughs> How would you actually do that? Like you would be traveling and writing together or would it be more of like collecting the, like the memories and then putting them down? Good question. How do we do our craft as writers? Um, so I think for me the most delightful part of this book was that I actually went out and wrote it. I didn't actually just go sit in a library, look at 10 books, put some research together and write 10 opinion pieces and stuck it together as a book. But you're right, um, I think what I used to do was every day in the field, as any person who's doing research, I would come back and take my notes. Um, and I, in fact, recall a moment in Manas where I'm staying in the rest house inside the park. It's on the edge, actually, with the boundary with Bhutan. And I had my young daughter with me, who's four years old, so the focus was constantly on how do we keep her warm. Um, and I would take some notes, I would write a bit. I find that uh, when I'm in the field, obviously the feelings are fresh, the facts are fresh, so it's easier to write them. So you make your basic skeleton of your chapter then, and then you come away, and then you actually have time to process. And that helped me because I think a bird's eye view is also important, you kind of step away, and then you find things which are common in a lot of the chapters. So, you know, if I'm learning something about vultures, which a scientist has done, and then I'm saying, oh, this forest officer is perhaps doing the same in this corner. So, I think a little bit of both. You write in the field, and then you come back and get a good view. Please <laughs> ask questions. Don't be hesitant. Questions, comments? Yes, Raghu. Uh, just wanted to know, you travel and documenting all these. Um, how much of rewilding uh, in non-government organizations are involved with and what's their role uh, is, you think, how important? How much of rewilding NGOs are doing? That kind of work, yeah, the non-government and in, uh, in, in their role in conservation. Um, okay, if I've understood you're asking the role of NGOs in conservation, uh, okay. Um, and specifically in... Uh, Yes. So the concept of rewilding, I, I didn't want to give away the end to my book, but maybe I will give a preview, <laughs> which is that um, I actually found that in all in typical Indian ways, obviously we're not using the Western concept of rewilding the way it is being practiced in Europe or in the US because they have large tracts of land minus human beings. So I think we've made our own Indian Jugaad way of doing it. But to answer your question specifically, I find that NGOs less. I think conservation is still seen as a government agenda, it's still seen the forest department's agenda. Uh, even the NGOs, for instance, the Jersey Wildlife uh, Trust, which is, for instance, uh, it's uh, breeding the pygmy hob in captivity, but everywhere they make sure that they say, in partnership with the forest department, in partnership with the government. So I would say less and less so. And I find that, um, if you're going to ask me to make a controversial statement, then I find that I think NGOs are less willing to take those bold steps that they perhaps need to. Um, and I think they prefer to play it safe. I don't know if I've answered your question or not. <laughs> yes. 
we've always known you and seen you addressing things on on documentaries through documentaries and this is different yeah so which has been more enjoyable and which do you think has a larger viewership the books or the documentaries and what made you great shift? question shift? what made me what made you move oh the economics of the industry very obviously but great question thank you for that um, I enjoy the immediacy and urgency of news um, you know a month ago 15,000 birds died on Sambal Lake and I literally just packed my bags asked an NGO to you know help me give me some money I I'm not a full-time journalist anymore. I said, I'm going there, I'm reporting the story. And I reported the story on Twitter and Facebook. I didn't have a single media house. Being... So there's a joy to uh, reporting, which I think I will never lose that. But of course, writing gives you, I think, the gravitas. Writing gives you the ability to step away from the situation and analyze things. And it takes me back to my days of uh, you know, a student of conservation biology, I still feel committed to that discipline. I, as an academic discipline, I enjoy that the most. So I think they have their own separate highs. Why did I move? I find that there's very little scope for environment journalism. We live in an age of shouting at each other in television, and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Whether you visited uh, Vidarbha's tiger projects? You visited Tadoba? No, um, I no, I haven't, sir. But I've I've heard enough. <laughs> ah, because yes. uh, asked about it, Vidarbha is the capital of tigers. Absolutely. And uh, <coughs> there is a man-tiger conflict is going on everywhere. Yes. Even in here, uh, Mihan. I heard that. Project, I read about. Tiger it. is coming there. Exactly. Yes. Mm. Yes. So, according to you, what's the solution? Tough one. Tough one, especially when there are scientists uh, in this room who deal with this every day. It's a tough one. Um, I think in conservation biology now we're saying um, it's called human-wildlife continuum and not conflict. I think conflict is a very anthropocentric term. It's defined from the point of view of the human being, so I'm less inclined to use it. Um, I'm not sure if the answer is to remove the tiger. I think more research is needed, more science is needed, and I think the decisions are taken by politicians and not by scientists and managers. And I think that's the shift that needs to happen. The person on the ground, whether it's the forest officer, in collaboration with the scientists, needs to take that decision. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. On behalf of Orange City Literature, Literature Fest, we sincerely express our gratitude towards your acceptance for the session and knowledge shared with us.